Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek, uh, and I am uh, flying solo today, but I'm very lucky to be joined by Nathaniel Powell, West Africa analyst at Oxford Analytica, that's Oxford, not Cambridge, uh, an honorary researcher at the Center for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. And Nathaniel studies Francophone Africa, among other things. And so uh, he has been very generous with his time on very short notice uh, to come and talk to us about the coup this week in Gabon. Nathaniel, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. And thanks for not associating me with Cambridge Analytica. No, I want to be very clear. You're not associated <laughs> with Cambridge Analytica. Let's start off. I, I, We've had, I mean, there's obviously been a number of opportunities to do these kind of coup specials uh, over the last couple of years. I, I never like to start with the, like, can you tell people about this place question because it seems so patronizing. But in this case, maybe we should start off with just a little bit. What should people know about Gabon as we get into this conversation? Well, it's uh, it's not a small country geographically, but it's a small country population-wise, only about two and a half million people, so actually quite small. It's one of the wealthiest countries in sub-Saharan Africa in terms of per capita GDP, about $8,000 per capita, although there's massive inequality, so don't expect it to look like, you know, Eastern Europe. It's, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty stark. It's uh, a former French colony. It's on the western coast of Central Africa, uh, so... You, you have people talking about a wave of coups in Africa, and almost all of them are in the Sahel. And this is like a thousand miles away from that. Um, even more, I actually have to haven't actually run the. It, it doesn't figures, matter. It's, it's a contagion. Away. The coup it's germs contagion. have traveled. Yes, exactly. Traveled south. It's clearly. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, it's a former French colony, which is also another important uh, thing to know about it. Because, uh, like I should say, almost every other coup in the past uh, four years, and that's the three yeah, years. Yeah, we're, we're going to. Don't worry, we're going to get that's into not a that. Coincidence. Actually, yeah, in a little um, bit. Yeah. And it's uh, what else is I going to say? Yeah, I mean, it's a big source of. I mean, it's Africa's third or fourth largest producer of oil. Uh, it's a big uh, source of manganese, uh, uranium, maybe not as much as it used to be, but still produces quite a bit. Uh, and also it boasts that it's one of the few countries in the world, maybe the only, I think not the only, one of the few countries in the world that has a positive carbon footprint or a negative, the opposite of the bad thing. Like it has, like it, it sucks in more carbon than produces. And that's been a, a keystone of regime legitimation policies uh, over the past decade uh, is uh, climate diplomacy. So you may have heard about it uh, from that perspective as well. Massive rainforests. So let's get let's get into what happened on Wednesday. What do we know uh, about what took place? And uh, you know, we can talk about Ali Bongo. I, that's that's actually going to be my next question. Um, but just what do we know about the events that took place on Wednesday and what prompted them? Um, the obvious answer is the election. But but were there other factors that you've uh, kind of seen discussed at play here? Right. So there's, it's kind of like, like there are with a lot of coups, you have longer term structural causes, which are shared among almost all the countries in the region and, and many countries in the continent. Uh, and then you have kind of shorter term catalysts. And the problem with this coup, I mean, there's lots of problems with coups, but is that there, there are kind of competing narratives as to what drove the coup plotters and why, why this is happening uh, now, as opposed to three years ago. Actually, it was a coup attempt four years ago. Um, and what, yeah, what the prospects are after that. So one of the, 
one of the things kind of to pay attention to is that you know Gabon, uh, Gabon's has 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 a history of coups, and usually having a history of coups or coup attempts is a reasonably good predictor that you're gonna have one in the future. Uh, and the reasons for this are, I mean, the kind of the ones you you think are obvious, right? Really corrupt governments, strained civil military relations. Although in Gabon, oddly, that hasn't generally been a factor uh, in the politics of the country, but it, obviously an issue now. And massive inequalities and usually things like insecurity uh, and um, sort of, uh, well, lack of uh, massive patronage networks behind uh, governance and the government of of a country. Uh, And oftentimes coups are struggles over patronage networks. And we talk about that because that's one thing that maybe is at stake in the Gabon coup, as well as in Niger and some other places. Um, So... These are kind of long-term structural features that make a coup in Gabon possible. Um, the fact that it's, it's essentially dictatorship also increases the coup risk because you know you have formal institutions and formal norms that say you know there's a democracy and they do have regular elections, but you know there are the ways the system works that have nothing to do with what those rules say. Uh, so uh, that also makes coups more likely because they are seen as you know if the regular rules aren't legitimate, then you know I can break the rules because the regular rules aren't. You know, aren't worth following anyway. Um, then you have to look at like what are the the more immediate factors, and one is the uh, president Ali Bongo, who's been in power since 2009. Uh, uh, he succeeded his father, who was in power since 1967. Um, w- was a you could argue uh, was an enfeebled leader. So he he had a, a stroke in 2018 in Saudi Arabia. Uh, spent several months outside the country getting treatment. Uh, there actually was a brief coup attempt in 2019. Uh, probably trying to take advantage of that. A couple of soldiers took over a radio station, called on the population to rise up, and the population didn't rise up, and these guys were taken taken down. Um, a couple were killed, so were arrested. Um, but the uh, the issue, one of the issues is that um, every time there's an election, Gabon, uh, since 2009, there's been massive claims of fraud, uh, and the claims are very legitimate. 2016, it was very clear that the opposition candidate won, uh, but you had really weird turnout figures in areas that are close. They're big supporter, uh, big supporters of the Bongo family, a region called Urugue, and uh, there you had like things like 98% turnout and or even like 103% turnout in some places. Uh, you know, voting for him, and that 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 just turned the uh, you know turned the tables and 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 brought him to to win the presidential election. By over five thousand votes, or just over five thousand votes, so you know, very. Close. I mean, it happens. You can get a hundred and five on a test. You know, if you get the extra credit, right? It, yeah, it can happen. It's an extra credit election, and he got the extra credit. Um, it helps if you have lots of oil money. The other issue is that uh, so after that there were big protests, like uh, and they were rather bloodily suppressed. Uh, a couple dead. Lots of opposition figures were arrested or, or sent into exile. Um, the uh, the winner of that election, Jean Ping, still claims he's the president of Gabon, um, and I mean, maybe that changes after this election. I'm not sure, uh, but he's uh, he's also kind of lost a lot of credit among the opposition too. So he's no longer really a big player. He's also very old. Uh, but then during the course of of, of of Bongo's second term, he had this stroke. There's been a lot of infighting within the presidential clan. So the presidential family is is vast. There's there's dozens, perhaps hundreds of people. Uh, that can claim credibly claim to be close relatives of the president, uh, including the new coup leader, uh, and the this these fights are often over things like patronage. In fact, um, 
Ali Bongo has been in a dec- almost more than decade-long legal battle with one of his sisters, Pascaline Bongo, who's somebody we can also talk about, a former girlfriend of Bob Marley, uh, over the inheritance of their father's uh, of their father's wealth, um, not in Gabon, but overseas, especially in France and Britain, some other places. Um, so, yeah, the coup plotters probably looked at um, the election as a as a pretext because there's a third term. Third terms are legal in Gabon. There's no constitutional term limit, but you know, third terms don't look nice. Uh, the election was obviously going to be rigged, so that was a good pretext to say, "Hey, look, this election is going to be rigged, so we can claim that, that that's a reason for us to step in and, and restore democracy or restore some kind of legitimate government." Then the other thing is they've been looking around the region, not necessarily their region, but let's say a bit further afield in West Africa and saw, you know, uh, six coups in three years and said, hey, wait a second, uh, those guys can have coups and get away with it. Maybe we can do it too. And that would, that's why I would say is the linkage between the, the coups in the Sahel and, and this coup here uh, is that there, there's a demonstration effect. Um, and in fact, the kind of language that they're using when they take over the radio, uh, the television studio and, and give their address on the kind of the optics of the takeover, very similar to what you've seen in uh, in West Africa in recent years as well. So there's there's definitely some kind of uh, tra- knowledge transfer, you know, um, going on. But uh, this is very much a Gabonese coup conducted for Gabonese reasons by Gabonese people. Let's talk a little bit more about Ali Bongo and and the entire family, the presidential family. Um, the, he strikes me and his father as well as kind of the archetype of the, um, let's say, dictatorial figure who, as long as he's, you know, does what the the U.S. or French governments want, as long as he keeps his the money that he extracts from the country in a bank in London or Paris or wherever, uh, and as long as he sort of goes through the motions of democratic governance, i.e. holding elections, whether they're rigged or otherwise, uh, he's the kind of guy that we're happy to look the other way with respect to and, and kind of, you know, let them do their thing. Uh, can you talk about both domestically in terms of the corruption and the, uh, the, the family itself and its reputation, but also in terms of international relations, how these, uh, these folks are, are kind of positioned? Sure. So I, you really have to go back to the 1960s and I'm a historian, so I like to go back. Uh, but this is actually important in this case because in, in the 1960s, France, France's colony, 1960 actually is the year that almost all of France's African colonies became formally independent. And France wanted to do everything in its power to make sure that as many of these former colonies, now new African countries, would remain kind of within France's diplomatic, political, and economic orbit. And this is a very important aspect of their, their foreign policy uh, going, you know, during, you know, from the 1960s onwards. And Gabon played a pretty important role there. For one thing, the president at Independence was a guy named Léon Ba, who was massively Francophile. He, in fact, didn't want independence for Gabon. He wanted Gabon to become, be annexed by France and become a French department. And uh, the um, French leadership at the time uh, thought that that would not be very good optics in the middle of the Algerian War. So they said, nope, you're going to be independent. Uh, but of course, independence comes with you know a deal. And the, the kind of deal that a lot of African states, not all of them, some actually really did break with France. Um, sorry, I have a cold to listeners who are listening or watching, and it's probably disgusting. So sorry about that. <coughs> I blame my children, but actually they don't—they're not sick, so it's probably not their fault. So the the, the deal at feel um, free to blame them anyway. I, that's <laughs> they fine. Won't listen to they're not going to listen to this. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. Just go for it. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, the uh, the kind of deal given to the closest clients of France was that look, you know, we will we'll invest in protecting your regimes, your security. Uh, you know, we'll provide you with obviously you know, generous economic assistance. Sometimes not so generous. Um, you know, preferable. Uh, trade deals for certain elements of your ruling classes, not necessarily for your countries. Uh, and the currency regime, which has often been derided and is often attacked, which still exists, called the CIFA franc, which uh, is, is guaranteed by the French treasury. Uh, and the, the, the flip side of this currency is that it really benefits elites in a lot of African countries because they can easily transfer their earnings into hard currencies because there's a freely as a, a guarantee of, of, of a money transfer, uh, of, a, of a conversion to, to euros. So uh, as well as free capital flows, which massively benefit European enterprises, um, not so much African ones. Uh, and but uh, so for for African leaders and elites at the end of the, at the beginning of the independence era, this was this is a good deal. Um, so they just had to kind of proclaim loyalty to France in the diplomatic level, support them at the UN, um, uh, provide you know uh, uh, you know access to markets. Uh, promote French influence in the French language, etc. And that was important to France. Um, and, and be on France's side during the Cold War. Uh, and that was that was the good deal. So this guy, Leon Ba, was super Francophile. He um he had cancer. Uh, and in 1966 or 67, the French government, um, uh, especially a guy named Jacques Foucault, who is really famous in France for being the kind of master manipulator of France's African policies. Which is a bit of exaggeration. There's actually a whole bureaucracy behind him too, and, and like the whole French state was involved. But he was the most influential single kind of French guy involved in in managing the former empire. And he came up with this brilliant idea, which was, look, why don't you change the constitution to create a vice presidency, and uh, we'll find somebody to be that vice president. So when you kick off, we'll have a vice president who's already being groomed, has already been groomed by France, and is a friendly guy, a uh, friendly face for France, and we'll, we'll essentially do our bidding. Um, and will will be a a proper president. So Leon Ba agreed to this on his hospital bed, uh, and they had the referendum. They accepted. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure it was a free and fair referendum. The vice presidential post was created, and the guy they chose for this was uh, was Leon Ba's chief of staff, Omar Bongo. And uh, when Leon Ba died, Bongo was became the president automatically. There was, actually was an election not too long afterwards where he was reconfirmed as president. And just about this time, you start having a uh, massive oil uh, exploration, like really starting to produce results in, in Gabon. And all of a sudden, Gabon becomes this really important uh, oil producer and a big source of revenues, not just for Gabon, but for the French state, because the French state oil company at the time called Aquitaine was Aquitaine uh, was, was the only oil producer in Gabon. And they were an important contributor to the French treasury uh, in terms of taxes. So this was a, this became, especially after 1973 and the oil crisis, uh, Gabon became uh, massively rich uh, by African standards, or uh, by regional standards, certainly. And uh, which means that essentially its elite became exceptional, exceptionally rich. And it also benefited the French treasury to some extent, although they were losing in other ways from the oil embargo. So this is the moment where Gabon becomes known as sort of the poster child of what was becoming known as la France Afrique. And la France Afrique is a mixture of the terms France and Africa, France and Afrique. And there's other origins of this term, but the current meaning, and this arose in the 70s and 80s, was of this kind of incestuous relationship between French and African elites. And Gabon was seen as a poster child of this uh, because 
there's so much corruption in the country and so many French politicians would go to visit Gabon or also the Gab- Omar Bago had lots of properties in France. He spent lots of time in France as well. Uh, and he would give money to politicians and political parties. So there's a kind of this revolving machine where the French would boost got, would boost uh, Bongo. Mago in return would help fund political campaigns in France. And uh, this is not just a, a Gabonese phenomenon. Muammar Gaddafi was doing the same thing as late as 2007 with Nicolas Sarkozy. So this is something that has a long history in French politics, African politicians donating money, taking advantage of very obscure campaign finance laws um, to, to help French politicians you know, win elections and to buy kind of patronage. So uh, Gabon became famous for this. And, uh, and throughout the 1970s and 80s and 90s, you had French-funded uh, presidential security detachments funded by the French oil company. Uh, you had um, large numbers of French uh, staff members staffing government uh, ministries, uh, the intelligence services, the security forces were partly staffed by French mercenaries, um, the, the, the domestic, like, kind of secret police, uh, partly French mercenaries, partly demobilized members of the Gaullist militia called the Service d'Action Civique. Uh, and the, uh, this also became like a, a big stronghold of kind of right-wing French political activism in Africa because the expatriate population in Gabon became uh, a big reserve of votes for the French right. Um, and, and even as François Mitterrand, a left-wing French president, came to power, or somewhat left-wing, let's say, um, you know, he, he was, he became much more, he became rather, uh, suspicious of French expats because they all were right wing and he was trying to, he tried to spend a lot of time trying to break this connection. Um, but Bongo is very, deaf, a very deaf politician. He knew he couldn't, um, he couldn't just attach himself to the French right. So he built lots of connections to the French left as well, started funding left wing politicians. And by left wing, I mean the French socialist party, uh, Hall. Um, and so until the, the 1990s, as this relation kind of persisted, and maybe even early 2000s, this kind of very incestuous relationship persisted. And it, it started to break down for a number of reasons. One is there were big scandals in France relating to El Fakitan in the 1990s, uh, relating to its uh, tax evasion, fraud, uh, bribery of, of different African dictators, uh, you know, corruption of French officials. And eventually the entity was broken up and, and bought up by Total, which is still present in Gabon. I think. Um, but also Gabon began to uh, you also have a, like, a drop in oil prices, so the regime started to have to try to find other sources of financing. Uh, but also, since the 2000s, the regime has adopted a much, uh, has, re- has adapted to globalization in a sense. Uh, so they've, they've multiplied their international partnerships. Uh, so, for example, today, China is the country's largest trading partner. Um, India is an important investor. The United States is an important trading partner as well. Belgium is an important trading partner. Uh, the EU as well. France is is still more of an important trading partner in Gabon than it is in, in a number of other African countries. But it's in terms of political influence, it's not nearly there to the extent that it used to be. Um, and this is a political strategy too that lots of uh, African leaders have managed. And since by broadening and diversifying international partners, that reduces the leverage any single partner has over over you and your policies. Um, and this has by and large worked quite well. Um, and uh, this is when, when Omar Bago died in 2009, he sort of set things up to make it easy for his son to take over. And actually it wasn't that easy because there were a lot of fights within the Bongo clan over, over whether Ali should be the, the, the one. Um, and, but he was Omar's preference. And when, uh, the election happened a couple of months after his death, uh, you know, he made sure he had the 
the ruling party apparatus and the security forces, because he was defense minister, on his back, and he was able to essentially win the election with a, a plurality of the vote, which was all you needed. And after that, you know, it's, it's history. Um, he had the state in his hands. Um, and yeah, so since then, his, his kind of rule has been marked by uh, an attempt to make friends with everybody in, in foreign, at the foreign policy level, uh, like the Saudis, uh, some of the Gulf states, uh, China, of course, United States, France. Uh, and he hasn't um, really tried to alienate anybody because, you know, it's important to... One, one thing he, he did do, which I think may have irked the French a bit, was to join the Commonwealth, which is really funny because it's, there's no there's no history of English-speaking colonialism in, in Gabon, but this is a... Uh, a couple other uh, Francophone African countries have done this as well, like Togo has done it, um, and uh, Rwanda has done it, uh, joining the Commonwealth because, uh, hey, it's um, it's another... It's another potential source of funding, I guess, and, and influence peddling, um, a way of diversifying your foreign partners. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's it's kind of the been the basis of of his international uh, foreign policy. The other issue is climate policy and climate diplomacy. And he's he managed to get himself uh, to be the host of the One World Forest Summit earlier this year. And he's used this to also reconnect to kind of West, some Western partners, including within the EU, um, he's attracted substantial investments in the basis of carbon credits and um, the, you know, the, the very real claims. There are real achievements in terms of the environment, uh, in terms of reducing uh, smuggling and illegal logging and things like that. Although there's also kind of a dark side because communities living, forest communities are, are oftentimes badly affected by these kinds of conservation policies. Um, so domestically, there's been a cost to that. But uh, he's managed to boost his international profile to the point that by this year, he's, you know, he was being spoken of favorably in the international press, not as an African dictator, but as a forward-looking visionary uh, in climate diplomacy. Uh, and that's where things uh, stood until he had his you know, election was overthrown. What an unfortunate incident this week. Um, let's yeah. talk about let's t- talk about the junta. I know I mean, it's just been a couple of days. So we don't really know very much. Uh, about its plans, but this strikes me um, as different from, for example, coups in the, the, the coups that we've seen in the Sahel, uh, in that this may be more of an like faction within the ruling elite that's that's kind of uh, overthrowing a different faction and taking power as opposed to. Uh, you know, an, a, a, an uprising from the lower ranks of the military that actually causes changes to policy, changes to foreign policy in particular. I know the junta has said uh, it's going to stick to all of its domestic and foreign commitments, whatever those may be. Um, I know the opposition has said, hey, look, we could we could get out of this really easily. Just recognize like that we yeah. won the election yeah. uh, and we're done. I, I suspect that's not going to happen because this seems like that that would really be giving up power for these guys, and I, as opposed to uh, you know asserting themselves at the expense of just another faction within this uh, ruling clique. I don't know. Can you talk about uh, like what we know right now and how this sort of uh, strikes you? W- what this group is and what it may do. Right. Uh, that's uh, that's kind of the. I would say it's a consensus opinion at the moment, um, which makes me suspicious because consensus opinions are usually wrong. Um, but that being said, the uh, yeah, I mean, the what's clear is the guy who was named president uh, right after the coup uh, is uh, a guy named uh, 
Oligi Nguema, and he is the head of the presidential guard. The Republic is called the Republican Guard. So much like in Niger, the head of the presidential guard <laughs> overthrows the president. Um, and that same day, interestingly enough, uh, the president of Gabo, uh, president of Cameroon, reshuffled a substantial part of his security apparatus in perhaps in response to the coup in Gabon. Yeah, so uh, Oligi is an interesting guy uh, based on what we know about him. And there's so he was Omar Bongo, so the father's uh, aide de camp just before he died. So he was like, he was, um, he was close to the father, at least at a junior level. His, on his mother's side, he is related to the Bongo family. He's often described as a cousin, but that word can have numerous connotations. It's unclear how close that relationship actually is in like a, in a, in a blood sense, but there's certainly a relate. He's certainly a relative of Bongo in, in one way or another. And there's very clear evidence that he has, uh, he has, eaten from the table of corruption um, at the Bongo family dinners uh, because there's uh, uh, very very solidly documented evidence of, of real estate purchases in Maryland, totaling of at least a million dollars uh, bought in cash, which go way beyond his general salary. Uh, and in the mid-2010s, uh, this before actually he was a, a, a top of the presidential guard. So you can imagine things may have gotten a bit worse since then. So... Uh, and that, and a number of his associates have also been credibly linked to different corruption scandals close to the Bongo circles. So, and these are the guys that are now in power. Um, and the question is, well, if they were, you know, if they were doing so well under Bongo, why overthrow him? And uh, there's a number of competing narratives about this. And again, the, the thing, first of all, it's early days. It's hard to tell. Another issue is that because of the obscurity of the way, you know, closed authoritarian regimes work, it's hard often to distinguish rumors and conspiracies from the truth. So I think all you can say with like certainty at this point is that you know, like there are there are definitely factions within the Bongo clan. And I don't mean clan in like a in like a I mean like within clan as in people that are associated with the Bongo uh, family um, or parts of the Bongo family. And one of these divisions has to do between Pascaline, his sister, and and, and uh, Ali. Uh, and the opposition uh, presidential candidate who probably won the election, Andawasa, is claiming that Pascaline Ali is actually uh, Pascaline Bondo is actually behind the coup. Uh, on Bongo, sorry, is actually behind the coup. I think there's no clear evidence for that, um, but it's true that she's been uh, you know, clashing with her brother for a long time, and she has a lot of authority and, and loyalty within the government, within the ruling party, and the Bongo clan. So, you know, it's a possibility. The other issue is that as soon as the coup makers took power, they started arrest. They arrested Bongo's son Nuruddin and a number of Nuruddin's associates. And Nuruddin was largely seen, was widely seen as the heir apparent. Um, and but he's also an object of of uh, rivalry within the Bongo clan, especially those people associated with uh, Pascaline Bongo, who don't want to see him ascend to power. So that's fueled lots of speculation that this was a factional move to uh you know ensure that the system still works for the same people rather than allowing Ali Bongo to take another term in office and set up set the stage for his own succession to another faction of the ruling class that anywhere in which you know the patronage may flow to different people uh and therefore this is actually a self-preservation a move of self-preservation by a, a clique within the ruling family uh, or ruling class that being said it's really hard to verify any of this. These are, I mean, these aren't all rumors. Like there is, there is a, there's a material basis to, to these accusations, but 
a lot of the speculation is just added speculation, uh, especially right now because it is early days. And it's very possible, you know, we can all hope that they'll just, you know, hand power over to the opposition or organize very quick elections uh, that are free and fair and bring in international observers and everything. And then they'll dismantle the Bago networks and everything will be hunky-dory and uh, Gabon will be a beacon of, of uh, peace, love and, and, and democracy in, in the region. Uh, so let's let's talk uh, briefly about what the reaction has been so far. And first, maybe start with the reaction in Gabon. I know there have been pro-coup demonstrations in Libreville. Um, obviously, internationally, there's been condemnation from the African Union, from the economic community of Central African states, France, the U.S., et cetera, the U.N., as you would expect. But But can you talk a little bit about um, you know, how things are being received right now. Well, so I'm not Gabonese, so I can't really speak uh, from that perspective. But uh, what I can say is from Gabonese social media and from the, the two Gabonese people I've talked to, uh, one of whom is not in Gabon, that uh, there are, that the people are generally, the general attitude is one of elation and, you know, is like uh, catharsis. You know, they've suffered under this, under this dictatorship for you know, 56 years, and, you know, whoever, whatever the junta is, they're not Bongo, um, and, you know, Bongo's gone, and this is at least a moment of joy, and, you know, uh, allows them to kind of express their, uh, you know, their happiness at getting rid of, of, of the dictatorship. Um, there is suspicion there uh, in the background. I mean, I think everybody, nobody, nobody's a dupe, like, everybody kind of knows that this junta is, you know, maybe not a bunch of Democrats, but, uh, what's interesting if you go back to the rather than like just looking at the videos of people pouring into the streets or whatever, and there were thousands of people in the streets celebrating the coup makers, there there is actually really interesting Afrobarometer data, a polling data. Afrobarometer is a, a polling organization. It's an NGO that does a polling in a range of kind of politics and governance and democracy related issues across the continent, across Africa, and uh, they're very credible. They do very good work even in countries where the political system is, is not particularly open to you know. Uh, expressing your political beliefs they just they frame questions in ways that are very uh, interesting so uh they f- for instance um they're uh so the last poll they did in Gabon was in 2021 so you know that might need to be taken into account but things haven't changed that much since then um so in uh during that poll something like 84 percent of respondents uh expressed a lack of confidence in the electoral authority uh, called the center the Gabonese center for elections and their um, their credibility for running elections. That's the worst score of every single country they've polled in, in Africa. So of 33 countries they've polled, it's the worst score. Um, the same uh, happened with the poll, a question about uh, do they think the previous election, which was the 2018 legislative elections, were free and fair? And 72% of respondents thought that the previous elections were not free and fair. And that's also the highest percentage of uh, 34 countries polled on that question. So we're talking about uh, uh, people that, that we have like pretty solid data showing that uh, are massively disaffected uh, by the current political system that they live under. And it's not a surprise that, you know, even if the change is a coup and yes, coups are bad, but the bongos might be worse <laughs> and getting rid of them is uh, something to celebrate, not to cry over and condemn. To be fair, most of the international condemnations so far have been more or less pro forma. You know, 
it's even France. Uh, right. Yeah, I, I, it, that's struck me too. It seems more like going through the motions than with Niger, for example, which was like real outrage. No, real freak or out. Yeah. Other things. Um, it, this seems like they're just issuing the statements that need to be issued after a coup yeah. uh, and moving on. Um, actually, interesting. China issued the standard French statement, which is we demand that the uh, physical security of the president be made, be, be respected uh, and you know they not be harmed. That's usually what the French say. Um, but China's a big investor now, so that's their concern. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that, like, internationally, the, the reaction is going to be rather muted. The, everybody's kind of waiting to see what the hunter does, what kind of transitional arrangements they set up. I mean, I'm concerned. I think a lot of others are concerned that since there's as yet been no outreach to the opposition, uh, and since they've already declared that uh, Monday we'll see the formal swearing in of uh, Oligi as president of the transition, that they're not planning to hand power to the people who probably won the election. Right now, the opposition is claiming it is demanding uh, an independent vote count uh, monitored by by independent vote monitors. Uh, and then, you know, which they're pretty sure uh, would show that Andawasa won the election. It's actually interesting. Leaked data from the election center to the French media uh, showed that Andawasa probably won something like 70 percent of the vote, which is also what the opposition claims. Um, whereas the official announcement, which took place 30 or 40 minutes before the coup, Said that uh, Bongo won sixty four percent of the vote and uh, Adoasa only won thirty percent of the vote. So that's how much that's how much it was rigged, um, or at least gives you a, 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 a sense of scale. Um, even if maybe he didn't win seventy percent, but it's uh, so yeah. And in any case, the junta is not clearly not interested in doing that, or it seems at this moment they're not interested in doing in, in giving power to the the legitimately elected um, representatives. There's a possibility they organize a short transition to an election, but I think the baseline scenario for me is they do what everybody else tends to do, which is let's have a national inclusive dialogue with all the main actors of the country. You know, uh, we can spin this any way we want. We'll have a transitional government that we name. We'll have a transitional uh, you know, legislature, uh, and we'll set some date in the far future. Uh, and we'll set up just so that, you know, we can either retain our privileges or even retain power, maybe maybe without a military uniform on, maybe with a suit. Uh, and, you know, the, they, the idea is to, you know, make things, you know, to use the cliche to, to have everything change so nothing changes. And, you know, sort of um, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss kind of deal. And that's that, that seems to me the likely outcome here. Um, so, you know, nobody, no foreigners' interests are going to be badly affected by this, uh, you know. This is going to shake the, you know, shake up um, uh, the region. Uh, well, it could if other militaries decide to launch coups, which is a possibility. But uh, yeah, but in Gabon, like the unfortunate thing about this is that nothing, there's a good chance that nothing actually changes and that things continue as they were before, which would be really tragic and you know, not to say criminal. I haven't seen anybody mention this. And if you uh, haven't heard anything, then uh that's totally fine. But I have to ask because people will wonder, there's been uh, a, a lot of ink over, spilled over uh, the connections between a number of junta officials in these various coups and U.S. military training, which I don't think is causal. I don't think the U.S. Yeah. is training people to do coups. It does speak to the fact that whatever part of that training is supposed to instill respect for civilian government is not working at the very least, uh, do we know if Oligi, as the commander of an elite unit, the Republican Guard, uh, undertook any U.S.? It seems likely that he he participated in, in something, but do we know uh, one way or the other at this point? Right. So 
I don't know enough about his uh, like training uh, to, to to know that. What I do know is that he was he he graduated from the military academy in Meknes in Morocco, and most of his, most of his foreign military connections are Moroccan, which is actually very common in Gabon. Lots of Morocco's played a big role in in military training and and um, uh, kind of uh, yeah the formation of of uh, or you know, advi- military advice and that sort of thing. France also plays a major role there. France, one of France's main military bases on the continent is in Gabon, and France, and they, they are essentially trainers. The the French forces based there now, uh, so they they also they don't just train Gabonese forces. They also do lots of things in the region. So, uh, yeah, in terms of the U.S. training angle, I, I I don't think the U.S. has been heavily involved in Gabon as elsewhere. Um, like the Sahel has generally been the target of, and the coastal West African states have been the target of a lot of U.S. Uh, military assistance efforts. And that includes training, of course. I mean, I'm generally skeptical of the U.S. training coup linkages, not because, you know, we're, we're goody two-shoes, but because essentially, you know, almost every mil- military, especially senior military officer in African military is going to go somewhere else for training. And often the U.S. has the most right. available. That's, that's my um, view, too. I think it's more correlation than, than causal. It's just there's so many programs the u.s has trained so many of but, these guys that but I was, it uh, does, the likelihood is yeah I mean, but it does raise the other question which i mean it's uh, i've talked to, to to people kind of involved in security assistance they're always puzzled by this like you know how can we how can we alter our programs so that you know people respect democracy or don't commit human rights abuses I mean, look outsiders can't do that you can't just tell somebody not to commit human rights abuse like it's not going to happen you can make killers better killers like you can do that but you can't make them nice like, that's not going to happen. Um, so maybe you just shouldn't do it. It shouldn't shouldn't be involved in, in these kind of security uh, training exercises to begin with, because it's not going to bring you more security, and it's sure as hell not going to bring lots of uh, local people security. But it will bring bring military elites, you know, money and guns. Uh, so to wrap up, um, let's come back to the question of the uh, coup contagion. I think I, I mean I, my I my sense, and I, I agree with you, is that. Uh, to the extent that there is a connection between all of these things, it's a demonstration effect. It's looking at what the other guy's doing and like they're getting away with it. So why don't we do it? What's, you know, there's no, no downside here apparently. Um, but I, without saying that Africa quote unquote has a coup problem, can we talk about whether Francophone Africa has a coup problem? And is that problem France? Uh, <laughs> is, is the problem that to a really absurd degree the french government just insists on having this not uh, both a, a paternalistic continuous presence that that i would say stifles political development in its former colonies but also this what you've talked about in this interview this sort of tolerance or even enabling of corruption uh, and what that what effect that has on political elites yeah so i think there's, there's different layers to this one i think is the historical legacy, uh, which has long-term institutional consequences. Uh, and that legacy is not only of kind of French-style centralizing states without the resources to centralize, um, and uh, authoritarian governments. And, and if you actually, if you go back in the French, the archives of, of the French, uh, different French ministries and, and, and policymakers from the 60s onwards, uh, to the extent that they're declassified, it's really interesting to see their logic behind this because it's very clear it, it, their goal is stability, uh, and stability is the only thing in their minds that brings development. And and you know, you know, even a democracy can can be unstable. And and you're better have it's better to have a 
a dictator can keep a lid on things than a democracy that might be, you know, uh, you know, chaotic and uh, might allow bad influences to to enter the body politic. That being said, the French role and influence and ability to do this has drastically decreased in the past couple of decades. I mean, there are so many more actors on the continent, foreign actors that have influence and leverage. And also because of that, African leaders have a lot more leverage over the foreign interveners that the French role in, in most countries where they used to be very predominant is no longer predominant. The exception is not Gabon. The exception is the Sahel, where France re-intervened in the 2010s and then became the predominant foreign presence and the predominant backer of a number of governments that are and you know were um, you know somewhere were you know on paper looked like they're democratically elected, but you know elections don't necessarily confer democratic legitimacy. And uh, but for the French eyes, you know they do, and that's all they need. So uh, you know they're happy to as long as they, their military presence provides security guarantee essentially to, or at least a security guarantee of a kind because these guys still get overthrown. Uh, which then removes incentives to to do things that actually might build legitimacy. Um, and that's been one of the kind of structural negative features of France's interventions, that they've, they've created disincentives for positive kinds of state building uh, and have indirectly fueled corruption. I don't think it's like it was in the, the 80s and 90s where it's directly fueling corruption, although there probably there may be some of that in the background. It was, there's just none of it's been doc- documented. But just the mere fact of supporting regimes that are not legitimate or popular uh, is going to backfire. It's going to blow up in your face. Uh, and Chad is an extreme example, although it hasn't yet blown up in France's face. But Niger just did. And Niger was supposed to be the one that was going to work and be stable and everything. And it, it, it didn't. So uh, there's a lot of, you know, the French claim and also a lot of Western observers claim that, you know, this, this wave of anti-French feeling or, you know, a- anger at France across the continent is being, you know, uh, spread by the Russians, the Wagner Group, populist politicians, uh, unscrupulous political operators, and whatnot. And yeah, that's all true. Um, absolutely true that the Russians are playing a role in, in spreading this kind of propaganda. But the biggest cause of anti-French feeling people in the region, seem to be receptive to it. Is the well, thing, the, thing. Like... I mean, the, the biggest <laughs> the biggest cause of anti-French feeling in in, in West Africa is France. I mean, like that's not something anybody in, in Paris could admit, but that is. Their policies are the direct cause of this kind of wave of, of, of rejection of, of the French presence. And I'm not sure they've gotten that yet. They've understood that yet. Some, it doesn't seem like it, but, uh, you know, maybe they'll maybe they'll figure it out at some point. Would they look at the U.S. Uh, everywhere else in the world? Yeah. <laughs> That's, there's, a, there's definitely a parallel to be made there. Um, Nathaniel Powell, again, thanks for so much for coming on the program uh, on short notice to do this. Uh, and, uh, we will, uh, have this out later today. Uh, where can people, uh, follow your work if they want to learn more? Well, uh, if they want to shell out some money, none of it goes to me. So I'm, that's not really, a, a, a you know, I'm not really <laughs> selling my, my book here, but I have a book called Francis Wars in Chad, uh, which if you're interested in the uh, history of French military interventions in Central Africa, I would say it's a good place to start. You can also follow me on Twitter at Nat K. Powell or at X or whatever the hell it's called now. Uh, yeah, X, I think. But yep. who knows? Call it Twitter. Uh, we'll have that. Yep. We'll actually have your, your Twitter in the show description and a link to the book. Um, so uh, on that note, uh, thanks again. And uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes. Bum, bum, bum.